what he did was to chase after people who may not be so much into conservatism or republicanism, but who more have antagonisms toward the political establishment writ large. People who are very likely to buy into conspiracy theories, to think everything's rigged. I'm Perry Rogers, and I'm a brand specialist. I'm Ed Borgato, and I'm an investor. And our conversations are about the tension between the head and the heart in the way people make decisions and their point of view on important issues. This is The Head and the Heart. So welcome to The Head and the Heart. This is Perry Rogers. And this is Ed Borgato. So Ed, this week we have Joseph Yuzinski, who uh, is a co-author of American Conspiracy Theories. You and I both talked about him. We're interested in what he has to say. But for you, what was it that attracted you to this issue and this person? Oh, there's so much. I don't even know where to begin. I, I As soon as I found out we were having him as a guest, I just really dove into his videos, which you can find on YouTube. And uh, I read his book that he co-authored called, well, we both read the book, American Conspiracy Theory. I just feel like we could talk to this guy for hours and hours. I'm really excited to have this conversation. I have so many questions. Yeah, I think what I'm most interested in understanding, and he obviously goes into this in his book, but, you know, who is it that believes in, conspira- in conspiracy theories? And what does it say about us? And which direction are we going with our belief in conspiracy theories? Are we staying about the same as we have historically? Are we increasing? Are we decreasing? And I'm fascinated by how fertile this ground is in the minds of our voters and what that means when these types of seeds can be planted. Yeah, and I think everybody has experienced this where you, you're speaking to someone or you know someone in your life who believes in something that's just crazy, and you know it's crazy, and you don't know how to reach them, and you don't even really understand where this is coming from. Like, what's happening pathologically that makes someone susceptible to believing these stories? And so that's that's something um, I'm looking forward to asking him about. So shall we get into this? Yeah, let's get into it. Our guest today is Joseph Yuzinski. He is an American political scientist specializing in the study of conspiracy theories. His most notable work is American Conspiracy Theories, which he co-authored with Joseph Parent. He's an associate professor at the University of Miami's Political Science Department and author of several academic publications. Joseph Yuzinski, welcome to The Head and the Heart. Thank you for having me. So let's start out with um, kind of the top line question, which is you focused your career on conspiracy theories. Who's most prone to believe conspiracy theories? So I don't want this to sound tautological um, that the people who believe in them are most likely to believe in them. But that's sort of the best answer I can give is that there are some people who have a worldview in which events and circumstances are most likely to be determined by shadowy conspiracies. So what we find is that people who have that worldview rather strongly are the most likely to believe in specific conspiracy theories when um, either they see an event or circumstance that might have something pointing in a conspiratorial direction, or when they hear a conspiracy theory, they'll be the most likely to buy in. So we can measure that worldview on surveys. And then what we find is that someone who has that worldview very weakly, they barely buy into conspiracy theories. Maybe they'll accept one or a few, 
but the people who have that worldview very strongly, they'll believe in almost any conspiracy theory we throw at them. And how does that break down? You know, typically we believe the person who believes in a conspiracy theory to be someone who is white, middle-aged, male, conservative, yet your research uh, shows that that's not accurate. Yeah, so a lot of people think my best line is uh, conspiracy theories are for losers, but I've got a new line, and both of these are taken from co-authors. I can't take the credit for them, but he said, uh, the data seems to suggest they walk among us. <laughs> so so there, there, there are no defining demographic characteristics right um so it's what i find is that conspiracy thinking runs equally amongst black white hispanic men and women left and right republican democrat um you will find that there's probably some differences between young and old in terms of which conspiracy theories they'll believe but i don't really find major differences in terms of oh it's older people or oh it's younger people um, it's an equal opportunity game that anyone can can buy into. Um, in some ways, you might say uh, that the data suggests that uh, people with more education and people who make more money will tend to be um, less conspiratorial in their thinking. But those are averages across the population, and it's not clear exactly why those correlations exist. So it could be the case, and I would like to think this as an educator, that, you know, people come and, you know, we educate them, and then they'll become less um, less inclined towards conspiracy theories. Um, it could also be the case that institutions of higher education push out conspiracy-minded people. Somebody called me and said, hey, I want to come work with you. Um, and do a PhD on why Bush blew up the Twin Towers, I'll probably be like, don't call me again, uh, right? So it could be the, the pe- pushing people out rather than changing people who come in. Same thing. I mean, if you were going to hire somebody to uh, uh, have a job that pays a really high salary, and you say, we need you to run these financial accounts for some of the biggest companies in the world, and then you said, yeah, I think the Jews control the stock market, you'd probably be like, yeah, we're going to hire someone else, you are hiring, uh, a, you know, a biology professor, and they said, "I think evolution is a conspiracy amongst Satan and <laughs> and academics." You'd be like, uh, "We're going to pass on your application, thanks." Yeah. So the, the forces could be going in both ways, you know. Here too, I mean, it could be that making more money makes you more comfortable and makes you less likely to buy into conspiracy theories. On the other hand. You know, if you're paying a lot of money for a job, you may not want to hire a raving conspiracy theorist. So we know the correlations. We're just not sure about the causation, right? Dig into this idea further about conspiracy theories being for losers, because you you go at great length to to emphasize that you don't mean that pejoratively. You mean it descriptively. Yeah, but no one listens when I say that part. Yeah, (laughs) They they just hear the punchline. Oh, they're calling us losers. (laughs) Well, it's such such an important part of this to understand because, you know, throughout history, as you point out, and I'll allow you to sort of flesh it out for the the audience because you can describe it much better than I can. But it's really about who feels as if they're less in power or less in control. And that's what you mean. That's what you mean by being on the losing end at that particular time. Yeah, I mean, take it even more simply than that. Think about a a sporting match. You know, who complains at the end of a baseball game or a football game? It's not the winners. 
Mm-hmm. It's the losers. So like, oh, the you know the umpire didn't call the strikes right, or you know the, the 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 you know the refs made bad calls. They were biased against us from the beginning. You know the winners were never cheated. To the winners, it was all hunky dory. Right. Uh, but for the losers, there's always something to complain about, right? And it's the same in sports as in politics. You know, we will see. Um, after the election this year, that whichever side loses, they're going to claim that they were cheated. The other side cheated us, you know, somehow, right? And 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 the method in which they cheated us will determine on who who that is. So if Biden wins, you know, the Trump people are going to say, "Well, you know, these mail-in ballots were all part of a scam, and we knew it all along." And if Trump wins, you know, the Biden people are going to say, well, he slowed down the post office or they didn't count the ballots or they kicked people off the voter rolls or they didn't let enough people vote. It was voter suppression all along. So the losers are going to have some argument about why they're the losers. But no one ever wants to look in the mirror and say, gee, maybe our ideas weren't that good. Maybe we weren't able to convince that many people. Maybe our candidate wasn't that great. No one wants to do that. No one wants to look in the mirror. Um, it's much easier to say we were cheated. And and that's, you know, we, we talk about that now um, because there's so much talk about voter fraud, but it's it's almost a regularity. I mean, you go back election after election and you can always find large chunks of people who think that they were cheated um, after the election. Um, and, it, and it always follows the, you know, the losing party. So the winners think it was great. The losers think they were cheated. And and that carries on after the election. So, I mean, think about the last uh, 30 years. I mean, when Clinton was in power, it was Clinton's killing people. He's got all sorts of scams going on. And then he left and people didn't care. And then it was the Democrats who thought that George W. Bush was up to no good. He blew up the Twin Towers and Cheney, Halliburton and War for Oil. And then he left and it was, you know, who cares about him? It's now Obama's a secret communist, a Muslim. He faked his birth certificate. He killed the kids at Sandy Hook to take away our guns, you know, and now Trump. And you have almost the same thing. You know, the Democrats are like, oh, he's a Russian stooge. He conspired with Russia. He's he's not going to leave office. He's taking over. He's going to install himself as dictator. Um you know, but if Trump loses and he's gone, those things will go away and it will be the Republicans who are like, ah, Biden. The only thing that's different now is because Trump is isn't just a Republican. I mean, he ran not only against Hillary Clinton and the Democrats, he ran against the entire political establishment. So even while he's in power, I mean, he's he's essentially the most powerful person in the world. So he's kind of a winner. But he still uses conspiracy theories whenever it suits him, usually whenever he loses something and whenever he feels like he's under threat. So the impeachment was a, a conspiracy to get him. It was a witch hunt. The deep state is out to get him. He's fighting the deep state. Um, you know, he didn't win the popular vote. So it must have been three million illegal voters who cast those ballots. Um, but, of course, the Electoral College got it right because he won that. So it isn't just that conspiracy theories are applied when people aren't in power. It's mm-hmm. that they're also applied when the power that they have is threatened. Yeah. So it, 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 this is the interesting thing with social science is that we build our, our theories off of things that we know that happened in the past. 
So when I came up with this in American Conspiracy Theories, my, uh, my book, um, this was pre-Trump. So looking back in history, we had a bunch of what I'll call normal presidents <laughs> and the, who, who didn't run against the entire political establishment. They ran against the other party. Um, but you don't have that with Trump. With Trump, it's it's a different thing. It's He's always under threat because it's the entire establishment who's out to get him. This is his mantra. Um, so it's easy for him to keep using conspiracy theories because that's the personality he built for himself. That's why he keeps going with it. His core supporters are about this thing, and he keeps giving it to them. They brought him to the dance they brought him to the prom. He's got to dance with them. So, so that's what you get from him. I, th- I, I think in a broader sense, people who feel like they're on the outside. So not just talking about specific partisan politics, but people who are on the outside of all of it are going to have higher levels of conspiracy thinking too. And that's what we find in our surveys. In a talk that you that you gave um, that that I recently uh, watched on YouTube, and I'm going to encourage everyone listening to this to to check you out, check out some of your lectures. You described in a very interesting way the election in 2016 and how conspiratorial thinking led directly to the outcome of the election. In so much as from both the left and the right, there were candidates that were using conspiracy theories. And talk about that a little bit, you know, in the way that that Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders represented one category of candidate and that how that affected the, the split of the votes in the respective primaries. So it's easy to confuse Trump with the Republican Party, um, but Trump is very different than most other Republican candidates. I mean, he's not Jeb Bush, right? He's not many of the other people he competed against. He's, he uses rhetoric that's entirely different. And part of his rhetoric is just conspiracy theories constantly and sometimes really bizarre conspiracy theories. I mean, he got he he got into the political ring uh, 10 years ago by suggesting that that Barack Obama faked his birth certificate. He engaged in uh, a lot of vaccine misinformation. Um, He suggested that Ted Cruz's dad killed Kennedy in 1963. So there aren't too many conspiracy theories that he doesn't like. Um, And he rarely disavows any conspiracy theory. He was asked about QAnon and he's like, yeah, they sound like good people. Um, And I am fighting the deep state. (laughs) So, so he's, he, he doesn't back away from any of it. it. So what he did was to chase after people who may not, be so much into conservatism or republicanism, but who more have antagonisms toward the political establishment writ large. People who are very likely to buy into conspiracy theories, to think everything's rigged. And he did that by just using conspiracy theories all the time. And he continues to do it now that he's in office. So he appealed to a different kind of Republican than a Jeb Bush, who's really an establishment guy, appealed to um, Bernie Sanders, same thing. I mean, Bernie doesn't engage in a lot of conspiracy theories. He just engages in one all the all, all the time. He says the 1% control everything. The 1% control the entire government and the entire economy. They've rigged everything against you. Heads they win, tails you lose. Um, and that's just, it's just not true. 
it's clearly a conspiracy theory. I mean, we can have reasonable conversations about wealth inequality and how much power the wealthy have in our politics. There are reasonable conversations to have about that. But you get a bunch of rich people together in a room and they're not like, hey, how can we rig everything tomorrow? Generally, they'll say, we don't know what's going to happen next. <laughs> and uh, b- because it's just not true that they control everything. There is no economics textbook that says, how's the economy work? Page one, the 1% just controls everything. End of book. No, that doesn't. <laughs> that's not how, how, how things work. And he doesn't even know, even when he shoots out these conspiracy theories, he doesn't even know how it works. Because out of the one side of his mouth, he'll say, well, the 1% are running a rigged system. And sometimes, out of the other side of his mouth, he'll say, well, they're a bunch of free market gamblers. Well, which is it? Are they gambling in a free market system? Or is it all rigged? Can't be both. Doesn't make sense. It's contradictory. But... If all you want to do is have a scapegoat and impugn people, then that's what you do. It's just like when Hitler said the Jews were rapacious money capitalists, and then in the next speech, you'd say they were a bunch of subversive communists. Can't be true. But if all you want to do is scapegoat, that's what you do. And Trump and Sanders in 2016 both got 40% of their respective parties' votes. It's just that Sanders was up against one establishment candidate, Clinton. That's why she was able to prevail. But there was 25 (laughs) other candidates that Trump was up against. So the establishment wasn't really able to coalesce around another candidate. Um, So they weren't able to stop Trump. Um, So that's why you got Trump um, and you didn't get Sanders. But. You know, you, you know that they, they sort of represent. Each of them represents the conspiracy wing of their respective parties. But they've and, they both use the same language, though. This idea of it being rigged, which goes to your point about people feeling like, well, I'm I'm outside. I'm on the outside looking in. I'm trying to figure out why my life hasn't turned out the way I wanted. You know what that brings me to. I'm I'm curious about how Trump has been able to kind of maintain that fervor of conspiracy theories, even though they're in power in the legislative branch, the executive branch, and really the judicial branch. It's it's really quite a feat to be able to market that effectively, that, hey, even though we control everything, we're still on the outside. So normally it doesn't work, right? So when Bill Clinton got in trouble, his wife went on TV and said, oh, you know, his troubles are caused by a vast right-wing conspiracy. It became a coffee mug. It was a joke. Everybody laughed at it. When uh, Obama uh, started his re-election campaign, he put out a commercial saying that secretive oil billionaires were out to get him. It didn't didn't really work, and they they dropped it and moved on to something else. Because normally you can't be the most powerful person in the world and say you're a victim of a shadowy conspiracy. But for Trump, it works because he ran as an outsider, and he still keeps that outsider image. Now, it doesn't work on anyone other than the people who seem to like him. I mean, it's it's not like he can talk about shadowy conspiracies in government and then get far-left people to support him doesn't work that way um but he is able to keep a coalition together by constantly prodding them with this over and over and over again 
So, I mean, there were people thinking in 2016 when he was running um, before he got the nomination that, oh, you know, he'll get the nomination and then he'll, you, you know, he'll change his tune. He'll start acting more presidential. No. When, once it became clear that he was going to get the nomination, he spouted out that Ted Cruz's dad crap about killing Kennedy and he hasn't changed anything. Um, so he, I, I, I guess what you could say, he's authentic. He's got his own thing. He's got a shtick and he's going to go with it. Um, and that's how he keeps his core supporters supporting him. You know, they're conspiring against us. We're up against a corrupt establishment. He's trying to drain the swamp. And if we don't support him, the swamp's going to win. As individuals, what's the right way to confront these conspiracies? You know, let's say you have someone in your life, you know, a sibling, a brother, or a good friend at work, someone that you went to college with who you're still in touch with, and you're having a conversation, and they lay one on you. And, you know, they're all in on birtherism or flat earthing or just, you know, thinking there's some credence to this QAnon thing. How, how do you confront that? And what's the right way to speak to a person whose mind has been contaminated with these stories? Uh, you don't. And then I think there isn't. And <laughs> that's sort of that. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 ask the question in another way. Right. And with different subject matter. So ask yourself, oh, you know, my cousin is is really born again Christian and they're all about it. But I'm going to confront them and change their mind. Mm -hmm. You know, nobody would ask that question because they'll realize it's stupid. You're not you're not going to send the person a link or a fact check. that's going to change their mind. Yeah, that person's a Republican, but I'm going to make them a Democrat in a quick conversation. No, not going to happen. So, so the answer is once they have their heels dug in, yeah. Once they care about it, it's it's not. It's going to take a lot more than a link, a tweet, uh, yeah. a snappy retort, or a conversation. And I, I think the people you can reach are someone that's like, "Hey, I saw this on you know the internet yesterday. What do you think?" There, mm-hmm. I have an opening. The problem often is that since conspiracy theories are largely just a representation of what's going on underneath. So when someone says, I believe in this conspiracy theory, it's often not because of that conspiracy theory. It's often just an expression of their underlying worldview. So maybe you can dissuade them of that conspiracy theory, but all you're doing is playing whack-a-mole. Is that you can get rid of that one, but they're going to have 50 others because they're just expressing the underlying worldview. And until you deal with that underlying worldview, that everything's a conspiracy, you're just wasting your breath because they'll just manifest that worldview with a different theory. Generally, those people who do believe them are less educated. They feel like they're on the outside. They're not making as much money as, as let's say their colleagues or the friends that they grew up with. And so whether you get rid of one, that underlying theory still exists, which is, or that underlying feeling uh, I'm on the outs. I don't really know all these facts, so there must be some some force that's against me that's prevented me from knowing all the facts. And I'm seeing from my friends or I'm seeing on Facebook that this is a way for me to understand why I've been put down. Is that pretty much where it is? So, so, yeah, but, but it's more us, right? They're out to get us. 
And that's what makes conspiracy theory very political. It's about groups. It's their, whatever that group is, that outgroup is working against us. It, it's, a, <laughs> it's a perception of being threatened, as you've talked about. It, yeah, and it, it, but the important thing, too, is that I don't want to take the demographic issue too far because those are averages across populations. You can find wealthy, well-educated people who buy into conspiracy theories from time to time. Right. So it doesn't have to just be, you know, the guy who, you know, doesn't make a lot of money and, you know, feels like he's been left behind. You will find them, you know, in the halls of Congress and in the White House. And when you look across populations, you will find correlations with money and education. But those aren't necessarily um, indicative. And what Trump was able to do was he was able to uh, convince people that, um the political elites, they've sold out the interests of the regular American, and it's all about foreign interests. It's the Muslims, it's the Mexicans, it's everyone outside. They're the they, and we're the us. And so yeah. that's why he kind of wraps it up in patriotism at the same time. Is, is that right? Yeah, so Trump appeals to all sorts of things, right? It, he wasn't just engaging in conspiracy theories. I mean, there was a touch of xenophobia, you, you, you know, the they're coming to get us. The caravan's coming. We've been cheated by China. They're making good deals and we're not. And, and our political elites don't care. There was obviously sexism and, you know, clearly racial rhetoric um, involved. Um, so he appealed to a whole lot of different things, um, with conspiracy being one of them. So he wasn't just chasing, hey, I'm, I'm going to talk about being a good Republican and I'm going to run on, uh, you know, standard conservative issues. He didn't do that. And even when you have politicians who will engage in dog whistles, um, his dog whistles were not dog whistles. They were just blatant, blatant out there. You know, we have Mexicans coming to get us and, you know, uh, you know, we have terrible trade deals and we can't make anything anymore. And we've been destroyed by the other, by other countries. Um, so there were clear messages he was putting out there that we were the victims of something, you know, of immigrants, of, of the deep state, of political elites, of bad trade deals, of shadowy conspiracies. You know, in, interesting. I mean, what bothered me is that his rhetoric, I, I think, in some ways comes off as more offensive than Sanders does in many ways. But, you know, to me, when people attack Trump, they said, well, how dare he say that the election is rigged? Well, yeah, I agree. He shouldn't say that it's rigged because it's not. But you have another candidate that everyone was ignoring who says everything's rigged. And to me, if you say everything is rigged, the economy and all of politics is rigged. That's bigger than one election. Right. So why are we tolerating Sanders's nonsense? You know, we shouldn't be and they should be calling it out. And, and, and I see a lot of this. Um, you know, in different campaigns, and and we sort of pick and choose what we're going to say is offensive. Yeah, right. I've been watching Biden um, campaign ads, and there there was one where they say something to the effect of, "Well, Scranton, Pennsylvania is a nice place, and Ohio is a nice place because they don't have those big city bankers." Well, wait a minute. <laughs> you know, you say on the one hand you want to bring everyone together, but not those big city bankers. You know, and, and we know we've got 100 years worth of, of this sort of language. We know what people are referring to when they say big city bankers. They mean Jews. 
Yeah. And maybe they didn't mean it here. Maybe it's just something that got by. But, you, you, you know, you can't say you're bringing people together except for those big city bankers. And, and we know that's a dog whistle for, you, you know, or has been used for a long time as a dog whistle against Jews. So th- that's not appropriate stuff. You've said in the past that you're seeing an increasing amount of conspiracy theories. You've done a lot of of work looking at letters to the New York Times for over 100 years. Mm. Um, So you've been able to kind of really see in our past how much we talked about conspiracy theories. And while we've had them throughout, it's definitely increased. I'm curious as to how do we break this cycle, though? Maybe you can't do it with the individual. But in a more global aspect, how do we move beyond this and get to uh, a conversation with people that um, doesn't make us so prey to information that's bad? So I want to be real clear on this. I don't think it's increased. In fact, if anything, I think it's decreased. But there are things that have increased. So clearly our political elites are engaging with conspiracy theories more than it seems like they have in the past. There's no clear study on this, but obviously Trump would send the the, the, the needle off the, <laughs> you know, uh, off the Geiger counter there. Um, and our media is paying more attention than it has in the past. So 10 years ago, I started a Google alert on the term conspiracy theory, and I used to get back four or five hits a night of, uh, uh, you know, journalists writing about conspiracy theories. Starting about four or five years ago, it was between 50 and 100 a night every day. So political elites are engaging in this stuff. You know, journalists are paying attention, but it's not clear that beliefs have increased. Yeah, in many ways, they've gone down. I mean, JFK, it used to be 80% of Americans believe there was a conspiracy behind the JFK assassination. That's come down about 35 points in the internet age. Um, Birtherism is a, is a neat one that popped up about 12 years ago. It's been stable, hasn't gone up. And there are a lot like that where they sort of float around a mean, they don't really go up, they don't really go down. Um, once the beliefs are there, they're there. Um, I mean, corona. you might say, oh my God, coronavirus beliefs have gone up, but only because we didn't have coronavirus last year. <laughs> but since I've been polling on it in March, it's remained very stable. It hasn't moved. So most of the stuff is believed by people who are inclined to believe it, and that's it. And you would have to have serious structural changes in how that conspiracy theory is being delivered or perceived in order for it to get bigger or smaller. Um, So I don't see an across-the-board increase, if anything. And no one likes to believe this, but I think we're much better off now than we ever have been in the past. You know, when I was a kid. Why do you feel that way? When I was a kid and I get a sunburn, my grandmother would rely on village wisdom to figure out what, what, what to do. So she would rub me in butter. All you have to do is say, hey, Alexa, what should I do for a sunburn? And she says, don't rub yourself in butter. <laughs> it's the first thing that pops up on Google. So it, 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 it's not the case that we have an Internet that just gives you conspiracy theories and misinformation and nonsense. People access what they want to access, and we have more access to authoritative information than we've ever had in the past. I have the world's library in my pocket right now. If yeah, I choose comes- to, if I choose to go out and believe, access conspiracy theories and nonsense, I can find it. But I have to go out and look for it. And in those places that that traffic in that are not the most trafficked places on the internet. Yeah, people want to 
a person needs to want to know the truth and to not stay wrong. And it, you know, but you know, you point out in your book, you know, that, that, that an opinion is a marriage between information and predisposition. And so the information uh, forms a mental picture of an issue, but the predisposition that we hold motivates our conclusions about it. And that's the challenge everybody needs to face when they're consuming information and news is to try to find some intellectual honesty and, and prevent themselves from being misled. But, you know, you, I think you begin the book with the story about the Declaration of Independence, which kind of indicates, you know, that this has always been with us. And, and you, you describe the second part of the Declaration as, you know, we all know, being this list of grievances that the colonists um, had against the crown. And some of those things had not happened. These were not uh, offenses that uh, the king had committed yet, but were anticipated. And you describe that as kind of conspiratorial. Well, if you want to get people hopped up to go fight a war against the world's strongest army, you're not going to do it with, you know, fancy Jeffersonian political prose. I mean, I think the first couple paragraphs of the Declaration of Independence are the greatest, greatest political writing ever. Yeah. I mean, I love that stuff. That's what drives me. But the rest of it is a bunch of nonsense. <laughs> um, you know, and the original draft that Jefferson wrote was much longer. And and Franklin and the others had to pare it down I, because they're like, right. they're like, dude, you've gone off the deep end here. <laughs> right. Because um, it, it read like fear mongering. Yeah. But if you have to get an army together and you got to gin people up, you know, that, that might be what you use. And and here's the thing. When we go to the media, I mean, sometimes we're looking for accuracy. You know, we have accuracy motivations. Uh, but sometimes we just want to hear what we want to hear. You know, why do you put on the cable news channel you do? Is it to find out what's happening? Well, partially. Is it to hear it through the lens that you want to hear it through? Also true, yeah. Um, so, you know, go listen to the channel that you don't like. And you'll be like, ah! this is not fun. Right. I don't, I don't enjoy this. And then you put on the channel you do like, and you'd be like, ah, finally I'm hearing the way the world is, you know, I'm, I'm finally being soothed. So it, 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 that's sort of put on steroids on the internet because you have so many choices and you can seek out, you know, exactly what you want. But even if you don't get what you want, you, you still have psychological filters. So you could say, well, you know, I'm not going to believe that. That doesn't mesh with what I want to believe, and you just kick it out. So we, we found this, you know, for decades that um, when you give people information that comes to a conclusion they don't like, well, that's not good information, and you know the source isn't trustworthy, so we shouldn't believe it. But the information that says what I wanted to say, well, that's trustworthy information. That's good evidence, right? So people pick and choose what good evidence is based on what that evidence says. It's the exact opposite of science is you, you get the conclusion, then you find the evidence and you pick and choose the evidence based on, you know, whether it tells you what you want to hear. And that's how that's how people come to conclusions more often than not. So, uh, you know, often I'm asked about conspiracy theories and people bring up things like evidence. And I say, well, people people draw the conclusion, then they pick and choose the evidence and they yeah. judge the evidence based on whether it tells them what they want rather than how, how good or trustworthy it is. Right. 
And I've had, I've had people say to me, well, you can't prove I'm wrong about this. I said, whoa, whoa, whoa. It doesn't work that way. I don't have to prove you're wrong about it. You're the one making the claim. It's like me saying that I can go into a bedroom, turn out the lights, meditate, and I can levitate. It's not up to, you know, it's not up for me to say to someone else, well, you can't prove that I didn't do that. If I, if the person that's making the claim needs to provide the evidence. Yeah. That's a really bad way to argue, right? It's a fallacy in itself, but that's the thing. I, I don't think that schools do a great job of teaching critical thinking or logic or media literacy. Um, so we often wind up with these sorts of arguments. That's why I don't like getting into them because you wind up with somebody say, well, you know, how do you know that there isn't a shadowy conspiracy? Well, I can't. I can't prove that that doesn't exist, but that doesn't mean that you're warranted in believing it does. That's and right. I think so. I mean, some of this comes back to to religion, too. It's just that, you, you know, you don't want to teach anything in schools that are going to offend anybody's religious sensibilities. Right. So we sort of leave all that stuff alone because the same sort of logic and reasoning that would apply to conspiracy theories yeah. would then take down a lot of people's religious beliefs. But, you know, because, I, because, because, I mean, the way I approach it is, is sort of more proactive. And I say, I'm not going to believe something until the relevant experts have gotten behind it right. with open data and evidence. And of course, that excludes, you know, most supernatural, paranormal beliefs and things like that. Yeah, I would say this about religion, though. I think there is one different way to look at it. And it's just my opinion only. But when I'm confronted with someone with deep faith, I don't see my incentive to convincing them they're wrong because in large part, their experience, they're having an experience in their life through their faith that brings strength, comfort and understanding. And from my point of view, for me to convince them or provides attempt to provide some sort of evidence that they're wrong about it doesn't gain me any equity. It doesn't make my life better taking that away from them. But when there's a large you know, group of people that think the former president and his wife have murdered people or <laughs> that the former president of the United States has started a war so that he and his buddy can make money um, in the energy markets – that has a corrosive effect on society. You know, we, most of the planet. But that's, but that's all very different than what's true and what's not, right? Right. So. <laughs> but I think most of the planet, I think most, I'm not a person of faith, but I accept that most of the planet believes in things they can't prove. Mm-hmm. And it's by and large harmless. You know, for me, I, I am a person of faith. Um, and yet I, I, you know, Ed and I were challenging each other this week. Is there a conspiracy theory that you believe in? Neither one of us could come up with one. Um, and so I, for me, they, they don't correlate. And it's because my faith is so, such an individual experience. It's not about a collective group. It's just about my relationship with who I believe my creator is. Um, and, I, and I think that that well, the question it, is, can you prove it to me? Right. Right. And, and that's then the not- other question is, I mean, you, you are an atheist with every God and creator that you don't believe in. Yeah. Except for the one you do. That's correct. So now let me put you in a closet with someone who is from a different thing, you know, has a different faith than you. Yeah. How are you going to negotiate that out? I don't feel the need to. But that's just where I, I yeah. come out on it. And, and yeah, but, that- but so, so, so here's the thing is that I, I'm not going to go out of my way to prove that you're wrong. 
but the question is, can you prove that you're right? Would you be able to prove that to me? Right. So, so this is the thing is that, is that with conspiracy theories, I have my standard of what I'll believe. And just as I said, if, if the majority of experts get together with open data and evidence and say, well, this is, this is what we think happened, or this is what we think is going on, then I'll buy into it. Yeah. Um, but until that time, I'm not going to say an idea is false. I'm just going to say, well, I don't feel like I'm warranted to believe it because I just don't know enough and, I, and the experts haven't weighed in. Yeah, I understand that. And I yeah. see that perspective. And, and, and I can't have some uh, a set of boxes where I'll say, I'll apply that to your conspiracy theories that you believe in, but I'll believe a whole bunch of other stuff that, you know, that I'll apply a different standard to. And that yeah, becomes think- very different. That becomes very difficult. I, I do think the distinction is important, though, because, you know, I I wouldn't see any benefit to convincing Catholics that they're wrong about being Catholic. But I do think society has to confront, you know, ideas that adv- that are advanced, such as um, a, hand, a bunch of children being shot in elementary school didn't actually occur, that this was a faked event. I think I, I think that has uh, that has a negative effect on society that these things aren't challenged. I think they should be challenged. Let me give you something from my last poll. So I asked people, uh, do you think that the coronavirus is, you know, being, being exaggerated to hurt Trump? I asked people if it was a bioweapon, but I also asked two questions that get to this conversation. And I, and I said, do you think that prayer will protect you from coronavirus? And we got 30% saying Yes. Now, if you want to pray to keep away the coronavirus, I, that's fine with me. Right. But there's going to be some people who will do that instead of going to a doctor and may very well die from it. And we find people who die um, who, who, because of such decisions all the time. Yeah. There are entire religions that say, oh, we won't take blood transfusions or we, you know, we, we, we won't go to a doctor. We'll, we'll pray this and that. That's, you know, that can lead to really bad outcomes, right? You're right. You're right. In that that respect, we should figure out a way to confront bad ideas when they do emanate from. And and then the question is, well, if if it's okay for you to have this idea, you know, and then then where do we draw the line? And and at that point, it starts to get very mushy. I I do get nervous when we've got, you know, 15% of the people in my poll who say, yeah, if you get right with God, you won't catch coronavirus. No, wear a mask. (laughs) That's right. Let me ask you this. If past is prologue and President Trump has created a coalition of people who believe in conspiracy theories, um, then when this election is over, assuming he loses, um, that's red meat for them. The, the very thing that we're hoping will break a fever could be the exact opposite. This could be, yep, we told you. <laughs> uh, people keep asking me what's going to happen, and I don't know. And again, I think the only thing I could say with certain is that people are going to interpret whatever happens in the election as however they want to see it. Does the American commitment to freedom of expression make it worse here? You know, Or do you have in Russia – China or other countries, you know, do they do they have their Kennedy assassination? Do they have their flat earthers or chemtrail, you know, uh, conspiracies? Uh, so here's the thing is that if you read the papers, you will read that we're the most conspiratorial 
and and we're the most conspiratorial right now. Now's the time. You're living in the golden age. But if you go back and read the newspapers for the last 60 years, you'll find they say that every year. Mm-hmm. And they never have any data to back it up. Also, you, you will find in the newspapers that whatever country they're talking about is the most conspiratorial. So if you look through coverage of the New York Times, you'll find, oh, it's the Africans. Oh, it's the Russians. Oh, it's the Latin Americans. Oh, it's the Americans. Oh, it's the Mexicans. So it's always one group or another that's the most conspiracy-minded. Never any evidence to back any of those claims up, and the claims go all over the place. Um, The only data that I've seen, and there have been some cross-national polls that I've taken part in, suggests that America is exceptional in many ways, but not necessarily in our conspiracy theories. Um, We are more than some, less than others. We're probably on par with some other Western countries like the UK, Um, but we're not the most. (laughs) Um, I would imagine the places that we can't poll in are probably the most, you know, Cuba, North Korea, (laughs) uh, places like that. Um, and, And you find healthy amounts of conspiracy theorizing all you know all over the place i'll give you one good example i mean when i say conspiracy theories people often think oh jfk and the moon landing well jfk is very popular you know in this country those conspiracy theories but moon landing gets like five percent but if you poll in some other countries it gets four you know three four or five times that amount like in france last i saw it was like 18 percent why you know for americans you know, moon landing is a point of pride. We did it. But for the French, they're like, you know, what, you know, whatever, they must have faked it. <laughs> and they don't have a problem saying that, right? Because they're not, the, they don't say that that's one of their great accomplishments. Where we're not going to call, people don't want to call their own accomplishments into question. They're happy to call other people's accomplishments into question. Thanks for doing this today, Professor. We really, you are very welcome. We really enjoyed this. So we love uh, uh, American Conspiracy Theories, which you co-wrote. Well, where can people find you on the Internet uh, if they want to learn more about your work and, and read you know, about conspiracy theories? So my website is joeusinski.com, J-O-E-U-S-C-I-N-S-K-I.com. And my latest book is Conspiracy Theories, a Primer. Um, it's fairly short and very easy to read. I think anyone can read it. It was written as a textbook, but it's it's pretty easy for anyone to pick up and uh, just get all the basics on conspiracy theories and the people who believe them. Um, other than that, I'm in the news yeah. <laughs> every day. I think I get six or seven calls from journalists a day right now. I bet. And, and un- most of my colleagues who are political scientists, we're all busy right now because of the upcoming election, but... I will get more busy after the election because everyone's going to call me and say, why does everyone think they were cheated? <laughs> yeah. Well, I'd also have, I also want to point people again to your, your lectures that are posted on YouTube. They're really interesting. So you, you can find Professor Uzinski there. And I really encourage people to do that. Thanks again. All right. Thank you. Thanks professor. Thanks. That was a good conversation, Ed. Yeah. Do you wish that we'd have gotten more into specific conspiracy theories with him? I tried to drop a few when I was giving examples, but there's just there's so many and some are, you know, bizarre. Like someone had reminded me this week when we were having when we were talking about having Professor Yusinski on about the reptile elite and the reptile elite conspiracy theory is the one that that says 
that the people running the world are, are really lizard people. I don't really know where to go with that. Yeah, I don't know where to put that. I, you know, that's why I was asking him, isn't this just about people who have an inability to deal with the truth? We've talked a lot about how the truth can oftentimes be inconvenient. Yeah. And this is about people trying to make sense of a world that doesn't always make sense or shrink information down to um, a form that seems very digestible. And I just think that there's a softness in that that candidly I don't connect with. And I think that that probably applies to you as well, Ed. I don't mean to be so tough on this, but I really can't find a different way out. It's just there's this inability for someone to deal with the truth and so instead of coming up with better ideas, they make up their own ideas. I can't get my head around that. Well, you know, look, I pride myself on being someone who really wants to know the truth and is prepared to accept the truth when confronted with it. But I do have to own the fact that I have my predispositions also. So information comes in and that paints the picture. But my predispositions leave me vulnerable to making certain conclusions about that information. And we all have to keep ourselves in check and do the work. You know, when I read what he had written about the Declaration of Independence, which is a document I love, and I, I read it every 4th of July and, and, and re-familiarize myself with it. When I was confronted with his argument that, well, the section on all the grievances that the colonists have had to suffer under Many of them didn't occur. They were arguments that this is what could happen under the crown. This is how bad it could get. That threatened my priors on what I felt about that document. But if I looked at it objectively, he's right. Not all of those grievances, they, they weren't all things that, that were done. And that's an example of where you know we all have to confront things, the, the facts behind the, the feelings we have about a thing. It is an example. But again, your response to it is the most telling part is that you do have to confront it, and you did confront it. And you have to assimilate that information to still be able to love the document, but to recognize that it, it included language that was designed to really foment uh, a, a military, right? It was meant to get people riled up. Right. And, and that's my point. I, I think that what I'm most interested in is that we, it seems to me, we undervalue courage and strength. That's what this is. We we overestimate our own opinions. And look, we all have our predispositions. That's not the issue. The issue isn't whether you have a predisposition. The issue is whether or not you have the courage and strength to deal with challenges to those predispositions. And when you don't have the courage and strength to deal with that challenge, we're all worse off. Because we then are starting to put out into the zeitgeist information that's faulty simply because it acts as a salve for our soul. Yeah, and I'm in the camp of confronting these these conspiracies head on. You know, think about things that are happening right now. You know, this 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 conspiracy theory about Bill Gates being responsible for the virus and having a plan to vaccinate everyone as as a way to implant a microchip you know this sort of thing that that anyone would believe it is corrosive and and i i think you know society should push back against this forcefully i agree with that you know we've talked about this one specifically 
And for me, it's about putting yourself in the shoes of Bill Gates. Here you are. You're a person that's done incredibly well. You're one of the richest people to ever walk the face of the planet. And you choose with your money to figure out how you can help others. And your reward for that is an unsupported, unsubstantiated claim that you created a virus in order to put a chip in everyone. I can't imagine what that must feel like for him. And it breaks my heart for him. It really does. And people say, oh, yeah, your, your heart's so broken. The guy's got so much money. I'm not sure what that's got to do with anything. People want so badly to understand the world, to bring order to chaos. They want People want so much to believe in something. And, you know, when a leader, when someone in a leadership position validates crazy beliefs and makes it, 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 it makes someone feel more and more like a victim, they're, they're, they're keeping them in a box intellectually. And once you're there, you don't have an easy way out or how to improve your life. If you believe the, 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 the forces are conspiring against you, if you know, either the, we're being taken advantage of and there's nothing you can do, you have no agency to better your own situation. I don't. I don't know entirely. You know what to do about it. It's very um, discouraging. Yeah, it is discouraging. You know, that's. I, I was asking him, what are we going to see after the election? And you and I were talking last night about that piece on CNN, where the reporter was asking several people at a Trump rally about the coronavirus. And the last woman, he said, you know, why aren't you wearing a mask? And she said, Oh my gosh, I would never do that. You know, well, why won't you? She said, Because I believe that I'm protected. And um, he said, okay, but if the president wore a mask, would you wear one? And she said, absolutely. And that fascinated me because I think that that is going to be an indicator of what a fair number of his supporters are going to do if he loses. You know, some of these conspiracy theories that have lasted the longest or seem to persist, such as the Kennedy assassination and the Jewish conspiracy, you know, the anti-Semitic trope that says the Jews control the media and, and banking and, and global finance. What's interesting about those two things is that there's a villain for whatever side of the political spectrum you're on. In the case of the Kennedy assassination, um, what titillates the right is the idea that maybe Fidel Castro and the communists were involved. And what animates the left is um, – the, the idea, um, the, the, the theory that the military industrial complex wanted Kennedy out of power. And it's the same thing with the Jewish conspiracy, this anti-Semitic um, uh, uh, idea that advanced, you know, to disastrous consequence in Germany and Europe, largely in the, the 30s, um, that said that the Jews were rapacious capitalists, but at the same time to another group convincing them that they were subversive communists. You know, there's like, there's a little bit of villainy in there for everyone. And when that happens, it gives those type of ugly um, ideas a very long and broad runway. Yeah. They have a larger tent to live in. And, and again, that's, that shows the danger of our biases and our predisposition. That's someone that wants to believe that the other is threatening them and they'll find any reason under the sun to believe that even if those reasons contradict each other so today was really good that's a great conversation i really uh, appreciated uh, his thoughts on this it's not um 
overly comforting because you can't find an easy response. But again, that's what we're talking about is the difficult truth. Yeah. All right. You want to take us out? Yeah. So this has been The Head and the Heart. You can listen to us on Podcast One, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Amazon Music. Uh, Please listen, subscribe, rate, and review. And we'd love to hear who you'd like to hear uh, us interview. And follow us on Twitter at head underscore heart underscore pod. Thanks, everyone. We'd also like to thank Casey Morris, who really is the world's best producer. Uh, Somehow he's found uh, a way to make us even sound good. So we appreciate that, Casey.